0: If you have a Bible, would you turn to Colossians 2, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Well, to call this day that Jesus died on the cross the darkest day, like we just sang, that might sound like hyperbole to you. Really, the, the darkest day of all the days that have been since creation, that was the darkest day. I mean, maybe some of the darkest days that you can think of on earth are coming to your mind. There have been some pretty dark days on our earth. And yet, this isn't an exaggeration according to the Bible, because what Jesus endured leading up to the cross and hanging on the cross was horrible beyond our understanding. We just sang about it. Son of God was slain for us. The Son of God was tried by sinful men. And then he was torn and beaten and nailed to a cross of wood. And that would be horrible for anybody to endure, much less God the Son, the sinless Son of God, was subjected to the horror of the cross. That's why we say it's the darkest day. Peter put it about as bluntly as he could when he preached to crowds, probably with some of the same people who witnessed the crucifixion of Christ. He said to them, you killed the author of life. The maker, comes in flesh and you killed him that's why we say this is the darkest day and it ends dark in the progression of holy week friday ends jesus is dead he's buried in a tomb crowds as if you just heard left the scene beating their breasts because of the spectacle that they just witnessed and these are people who had seen that sort of thing before Women were weeping, disciples were hiding and afraid and confused and in despair. To all appearances, there was nothing that day that anybody would have called good. But we call it good. It's because we know more than they did that day. We know what that day accomplished We know that that day was victorious and triumphant. And tonight we're gonna reflect on the triumph of the cross. Do you all love the moments in movies where the bad guy goes down? We all do. We love those moments, not just where the good guy wins, but when the bad guy gets it, right? And the worst that the good guy is, the position that the good guy's in, the more excited we are when the bad guy finally goes down, right? The good guy, it looks like all is lost, and all of a sudden the tables turn and the victim becomes the victor, and we fist pump, or whatever you do in those moments, you say, yes, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I don't know what movie scene might come to your mind, but I'm a child of the 80s, and like it or not, I'm going to reference the Karate Kid in this Good Friday service. (laughs) I was 13 in 1984 when the Karate Kid came out, and I was at an awkward age, as all 13-year-olds are, actually. Even the coolest 13-year-old is a nerd. Sorry. I love you 13-year-olds if you're in here. But I was 13. I wasn't very popular, so I could totally identify with Danny LaRusso, kid moved from out of town with his single mom, not that I related to that necessarily, but sort of the the getting bullied part. He moves to a new school, and immediately the the resident gang of karate-skilled bullies under the blonde-haired, feathered banged leadership of Johnny (laughs) starts after him bullying him one day they finally chase him down after school on their cool cool bikes and they start beating him up and what do you know It we come to find out his landlord just happens to be a martial arts expert praise the lord for mr miyagi right and he steps in he begins training danny in martial arts, and he trains him so that he finally can go to the regional f- championship and go face to- face with Johnny and, and prove himself and take him down. And he gets there, he gets to the finals, and the, eh, sorry, spoiler alert for all of you who are too young to have seen this. you'll have to go back. But it gets to the final. and it's him and Johnny, and Johnny's way taller than him, and he's got muscles, and Danny doesn't have muscles yet. And it gets right down to the end, and, and Johnny's already got him, and he fights dirty. What does he do? He sweeps the leg. You're with me right now. He sweeps his leg. (laughs) Dirty trick. He breaks the rules, but it's okay because now he's injured Danny. He's only got one ankle and it looks like it's over. Done. But Danny digs deep inside and he stands on his one good ankle just so you can see it. And he lifts his hurting one up and he gets in the position. You know it like this, the crane kick. And everybody's waiting and the ref gives the signal and Johnny, I just watched the scene again on YouTube. Johnny comes in with these biceps like this and Daniel just goes Pish, like that and he hits the mat over. The crowd goes crazy and 13-year-old me when I first saw Karate Kid was like, yes! There's a reason we respond like that in movies. Maybe it wasn't Karate Kid for you. There's something in us that loves to see evil overcome? Because deep inside we know that's the way it's supposed to be. That evil's not supposed to win. That righteousness is supposed to triumph over evil. And when we see scenes and glimpses of it, it stirs something in us, a longing for that. Well, the cross was the reversal of all reversals. The cross was where the promise that God made all the way back in the garden was decisively accomplished. That promise God made to Satan that he would be defeated and that mankind, God's treasure, he would redeem and rescue and and, and pay the consequences of their sin and redeem them. The cross is where that happens. If you remember, as we've been in Genesis recently, God told Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Battle will go on. But here's how it's gonna end. He shall bruise your head. That's the greater victory. And you shall bruise his heel. That's the lesser. And that's the overarching story of the Bible. Leading all the way up to the cross and the cross is where the final head bruising happens. I love this kid's story Bible. Just a few years ago, Crossway published it. Kevin DeYoung, if you don't have this book, it's wonderful for adults and kids. The illustrations are beautiful. But I love his title. He's telling the story starting in Genesis 3, this promise that one day the head of the serpent would be crushed uh, and and culminating in in the cross and then beyond into the new heavens and earth. But here's his title. The Biggest Story, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. That's the story of the Bible. And we're not back to the garden yet at Good Friday, but when Jesus came, that's when the snake's head was crushed. But it wasn't without a fight. Think about from the moment that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and he was born in Bethlehem to a virgin, Satan came after him. I have no doubt Satan was behind Herod's jealous anger. As he heard word that in Bethlehem there may be a child that was born that fits that prophecy in Micah of the Christ, of the king, the forever king that's going to sit on David's throne. And Herod wasn't having it. And filled with jealousy, he sends squads of soldiers to kill every boy, to and under, to eradicate the threat to his throne. And God intervenes. Mary and Joseph flee by night and Jesus is safe fast forward to jesus he's grown up he's a man he's beginning his ministry and immediately as he as he he begins his ministry satan comes after him in the desert to tempt him he thinks maybe he can take jesus out the same way he take took the first adam and eve out he can twist god's word and lie and lead jesus to turn his back on god and do things his own way and he fails Jesus is filled with the spirit and he's unmoved and Satan realizes it and it says in Luke's gospel, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The cross is that opportune time. The cross was the moment when Satan would land his final bruising you remember in the garden the night that Jesus was arrested and it's all dark and the chief priests come out after him with soldiers they're hired thugs and Judas kisses Jesus and identifies him Jesus looks at them and he says this is your hour when darkness reigns this is your hour and those final moments leading up to the cross it looked like darkness was going to reign and all along Jesus doesn't resist. He doesn't argue, he doesn't fight back. He doesn't run away. He just takes it. He takes the insults, and humiliation and physical torture. Just imagine these things happening to you. He was spit upon in his face. Took it. He was slapped in the mouth by religious leaders that he knew were whitewashed tombs and looked good on the inside, but in, or outside, but inside were filled with dead men's bones. And he received that slap. He was pierced with a crown of thorns on his head in, in, in mock uh, worship. He was beaten on the head with sticks. He was flogged to within an inch of his life uh, in such a way that the bone and muscle in his body would have been exposed to the elements and the dirt And still, he didn't fight back. Severe blood loss, weakness. And just like Isaiah had prophesied, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that was before its shearers were silent, he opened not his mouth. And then it got even uglier on the cross. And as if the physical torture of being nailed through the wrists and hung in a position where you would suffocate yourself wasn't torture enough. Jesus on the cross, God the Son, experiences the Father turn his face away and leave him there. Not step in and vindicate him, the righteous, sinless, spotless Lamb of God who of all humans in history doesn't deserve to be there. The Father allows this to happen. All that the Son Jesus, or God the Son had ever known for eternity past was perfect fellowship and happiness and joy and approval and love and delight of God the Father and God the Spirit and hanging on the cross, Jesus experiences what it feels like to be forsaken by God. And to top it all off as this is happening, The crowds are mocking, the soldiers are mocking. One of the criminals hanging next to him is mocking and they're all saying the same thing. What are they saying? Save yourself. The soldiers, come on, if you're the Christ, save yourself. Even the criminal, he's thinking, maybe I got a shot here. Save yourself if you're the Christ and us, he says. But Jesus hadn't come to save himself. It's not why he was there. He came to give himself up as a ransom. Jesus had already called his own shot. I grew up playing pool with my grandfather. He taught me how to play pool and he didn't allow slop. I don't know if you, no slop. You had to call your shot when you were playing pool, right? He didn't want some fancy looking shot that you accidentally sunk to count, right? You had to call it. You see that ball's going in that pocket and it's gonna go this way. Jesus called his shot. (laughs) Many times in the gospels, Listen to this, Luke 9, Jesus calls his shot. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Again, a little later to his disciples, he says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But Luke's gospel says the disciples didn't understand. They didn't get it. Again, in Luke 18, as they're entering the city, Jesus says to his disciples, do you see? We're going up to Jerusalem. Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And he will be mocked. And he will be shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging, they will kill him. And on the third day... He will rise. So, what appeared to be weakness and defeat was power and restraint and strength and resolve in our Savior. We keep seeing glimpses of it. At the last Passover meal with Jesus and his disciples, he tells them the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. No surprises. As he's stumbling up the hill to Golgotha, no longer able to carry his own crossbar, some other guy named Siren gets pulled in to carry it for him. Women are weeping, and he turns to the women, as you heard, and he says, don't weep for me. And to the criminal who's repentant and believes and asks Jesus to remember him when he enters his kingdom, Jesus confidently assures him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Nothing is surprising Jesus. Jesus called his shot. And through his death, Jesus triumphed over our greatest enemy. That's why we call it Good Friday. In God's amazing sovereign plan, the way he works it out is so that Satan as he delivers the final blow to bruise Jesus' heel, in doing so actually lands the crushing blow upon himself. And he loses. Look at Colossians 2, 13 through 15, just three verses. These describe Jesus' death in the most victorious terms, I think. Paul says you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. I love this next sentence. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The Jesus who had been stripped of his clothing and was hanging naked and bleeding, suffocating, and, and, and struggling to breathe, he actually triumphed over his enemies and put them to open shame as he died on the cross. Satan thought when Jesus gave up his last breath that he had taken him down. And Paul says, no, no. Jesus had just disarmed him, triumphed over him, and put him to open shame. Paul says rulers and authorities here, most likely he's not thinking primarily of Herod and Pilate, although Christ put them to shame too as he rose from the grave and proved his identity But Paul, I think, has in mind here Satan and the demonic forces that have been at work in this world fighting against God to take God's uh, creation, mankind, down. Those are the ones he has in mind that Jesus disarmed and triumphed over and put to open shame. Listen to this. This is in the fourth century, Athanasius. So Someone already put that up for me? He says, a marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred. For the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. In other words, what he's saying is this instrument of cruel, unusual punishment that's standing behind me, this torture device called a cross, has become the central image of our faith and our profession as Christians and those who follow Christ. Because it stands for the place not where Jesus suffered at the end but where Satan was disgraced and triumphed over. So two questions from these three verses. First, what power did Jesus strip Satan of at the cross? He disarmed rulers and authorities. He stripped them of their power is what it means. So if he disarmed Satan and and his, his authority, his rulers and authorities, what did he strip them of? He stripped them of their power to accuse, according to these verses. He rendered Satan's accusations and condemnation void. Revelation 12 calls Satan the accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night before God. He accuses us of our sin, he accuses us of our guilt because he knows the deal, he knows our sin. He knows that as in Adam all die and we're all in Adam and he knows that God is holy and just and he knows that God will not, cannot just sweep sin aside, but it must be punished. uh, Satan knows that the wages of sin is death and so he comes accusing. We sing a song here frequently at Grace before the throne of God above and we sing when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within. Do you know that voice? That voice telling you of the guilt within, even guilt that maybe no one else knows of. Satan loves to tell you of that. He comes saying things like this, God would never forgive you. Don't you know how great your sin is? Do you think he would forgive that much sin? He comes saying things like this, you did that again? didn't you just ask God's forgiveness for that yesterday or this morning? You think he's gonna forgive you again? He says things like, surely God won't keep forgiving. Surely you've out-sinned God's grace by now. And I think he uses this weapon against people, keeps them from turning to Christ in the first place, and and he uses it to keep Christians miserable and fruitless in their life. And what makes this weapon so deadly apart from Christ is that he's right. Because of our sin, Paul says, each one of us has a record of debt. In Paul's day, this was a handwritten note written by the one who owed the debt saying what they owed. It's like an IOU. And we've all incurred a record of debt with God, Paul says, and that is death. Jesus used the word perish. So not just physical death, but even after that, facing judgment and the possibility of being separated for eternity from God forever. And as long as the record of debt remains, Satan's accusations are true. He can condemn you. But at the cross, Jesus stripped him of that. So the second question is how? And Paul says he did it by canceling the record of your debt and he canceled the record of my debt and in doing so he set it aside cancel means blotted out wiped away erased it and this is amazing in acts 3 peter is preaching to these first crowds of people to hear the gospel and that through Christ they can be forgiven of their sins some of them are the ones who put Jesus on the cross some of them are the ones who he says to their eye looking in their eyeballs you killed the author of life and listen to what he invites them to repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out same word cancelled your record of debt killing the author of life is a sin that can be blotted out gone and he says set aside that doesn't mean swept aside that means carried away that means it disappears god makes your record of debt disappear and he does it by nailing it to the cross and he did it actually in the past on that darkest day by nailing it to the cross it's already been done The image was this. When a criminal was crucified, they would write the crimes that they were being killed for on, on, on a parchment or on paper and put it on, on the cross above the person as they died. So in our text today, they wrote, you know, claims to be the king of the Jews above Jesus' head. That's what he's being killed for. And Paul uses this image that says we all have a record of debt that stands against us And that record of debt, yours and mine, that was nailed to the cross, hanging over Jesus' head as if he was guilty of your record of debt. And then he paid it. That's why the father turned his face away, because of your record of debt. And as Jesus hung there in your place, God treated him as if that debt belonged to Jesus, and Jesus took it. And when he cried out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last, that debt was set aside. It was blotted out. So tonight, some questions for you. There's a lot of you in here tonight. I'm not sure where you all stand with God. I don't know who you all say that Jesus is. Each of you, I know what many of you believe about Jesus, but for some of you, I wanna ask, do you understand and believe that there is a record of death that stands against you before God? That God who made you has the right to also be your judge, that you owe an account to him of your life and to turn from him in high-handed, ugly, heinous ways or in very clean-cut sort of no-thank-you-God sort of ways is all falling short of the glory of God, of giving him the glory he's due and that you have a record of debt before him. Maybe in this service are you coming to see for the first time that the awful events of the cross are actually telling you how serious sin is and how seriously God takes sin? Are you hearing maybe for the first time that Jesus willingly put himself in your place and he hung under your record of debt. Let me ask, does that make you, when you hear that, that God would do that for you, does that make you want to run from him or to him? I've been praying that it would make you want to run to him tonight. Tonight. And you want to know how you receive the benefits of this incredible act of redeeming love that Christ has accomplished on your behalf? You do it the way you take a free gift. You receive it. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. You repent and you believe. That means you turn from you, your sin. You agree with God about your sin and you say, God, I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. I want to be forgiven of it and I want to run from it. And you turn to Jesus and you say, I understand now, God, that the only one who has ever and could ever pay my debt is Jesus. And I'm calling on his name to be saved. Would you forgive me in Jesus' name? The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord like that will be saved. That could be you. You could pray that sitting in your seat right now. Whatever words you put, put that in to God, you could communicate those things to God and God will forgive your sin and send his spirit to dwell in you and make you new. And if you do that right now, I want to encourage you to do something else. All those cards that were on your, your chair as you came in and there's pens throughout, I would encourage you, if that's you, For the first time, this is making sense. This is coming clear. And your heart wants to do that and get right with God. And you pray that. Here's what I want you to write on that card. All my sins. You don't even have to enumerate them. God knows. Just write all my sins and fold it in half. And in just a few minutes, we're going to close this service with some extended time to sing and praise Jesus for conquering death and hell. And Satan. And while we're singing these hymns, I want to invite you to take that card and walk up here. There's a, a bowl full of pins, don't poke yourself. And take one of these pins and I want you to nail and I want you to pin your card to the cross. No one's going to look at it. We'll get rid of them later. As a reminder to you of what the Bible is saying to you that Christ set aside your record of debt by nailing it to his cross. And then I want you to come find me after the service, because I want to talk to you and I want to pray with you. And to the rest of you in this room, church, I want to say we know believing that our record of debt is canceled is hard. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. I wish I could live moment by moment, day by day, in the full assurance and rest and peace that God is smiling upon me because of Christ, but I don't. I live under the shadow of sin, of past sins, of besetting sin, Just because Jesus stripped Satan of his power to accuse doesn't mean Satan doesn't stop accusing and that you don't. You wanna know the difference now? The difference now is that when Satan accuses you, he's like a guy holding up a 7-Eleven with a finger in his sweatshirt pocket like this. There's nothing in there. You can say, show me what's in your pocket. (laughs) There's nothing. That's what these verses mean. He can accuse you, but his accusations are empty. And as a reminder of that to you as you leave the service, I want you to take your card as we're singing. Maybe there is a besetting sin. Maybe there is an a- area of sin or an idol in your heart that is so hard to let go. And even tonight, you feel the guilt of it. And you wonder how many times would God keep forgiving me of this? I want you to write that on that card. Or maybe it's past sins. They were 10 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, and they still come to your mind and make you wonder about the extent of God's grace. Write that on that card. Maybe there's just something that this week you haven't even confessed to God. And God's laid this on your heart in this service. Write that on your card anonymously. We're not gonna read them we not gonna kind of track your handwriting down. Fold it in half, and while we're singing, come forward, take a pin, and put it on the cross. Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you were not willing to withhold your own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. And because Jesus, you willingly laid down your life for the joy set before you and you endured the cross to the end and rose again as we're gonna celebrate on Sunday, we can be forgiven and free and new and have a hope, a living hope and wait for Jesus your return eagerly, not fearfully. That is wonderful news Jesus, we praise you for the power of the cross that looked so weak, but in actuality was incredibly strong. We thank you that our enemy, even though he still rages on this earth, that there will come a final day where that raging will stop and he will be gone forever. Every last enemy will be gone and you will reign. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray for us, your church, that you would strengthen us You'd help us to put on the full armor of God that we would withstand in the evil day, in the evil days that will come. And having done all, we would stand firm. We need your help with that. So Lord, right now, as we sing and we thank Jesus with these songs, I pray that this this visual image of us putting our sins upon Jesus' cross would remind us of the words canceled and finished.